welcome everyone to LambdaCast. My name is David Kuntz, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Logan Barnett. Hello. And Aaron Johnson. Hello. We've been hearing uh, feedback from a few of you, uh, sort of uh, a mix of people who are just beginning on their journey towards functional programming and people who are a little further along. We hope that we can keep uh, giving you a good content on a regular basis. If you have any questions or just general feedback, please send it to us at contact at lambdacast.com. Lambdacast.com is also where you can go to subscribe via the RSS feed or listen to the episodes directly on SoundCloud. You can also join us on a Slack community, fpchat.com. It's a very large uh, Slack channel for functional programming enthusiasts covering pretty much every language that can be considered in any way, shape, or form functional. And uh, lots of experts uh, to beginners, the whole range, usually very friendly and uh, open to everyone. So please join us there. And uh, it's not just us, thousands of people to help you out. So this time we are talking about one of the trickier bits when explaining functional programming, something that I, I think a lot of people kind of, when they hear it, they just kind of their brains, you can see the, the gears freeze up and they kind of go, what? And that is immutability. What? Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> they go, so immutability means you can't change things. And programs are kind of about changing things. That's kind of the point. So this seems like a no-go, like right out of the gate. You mean you guys don't write programs where the machine just gets warm and that's it? And there's no observable effect? Right. Not for money, generally. Hmm. It seems to me that immutability is a really simple idea, actually. It's not very complex. It's just I hear it and I go, why? What? How? What? Yeah. Exactly easy yeah. I don't know how you're going to do anything. So let's, why don't you go through, before I you know, go over my reactions, let's talk about sure. what it is. Okay, so the first thing I just want to throw out there is that um, a lot of times you'll hear this word value thrown out, value slash values. And when people, certainly in the functional world, um, Obviously, words have lots of meanings in different contexts, but in the functional kind of context, when you hear value, it means an immutable value, a value that once sort of, uh, well, it's, it's not even like once set doesn't change. A value is like five. You wouldn't say, well, how do you change five into six? Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? Or string. Strings are very good examples of values, right? We, in most languages, at least, we don't, change, we don't mutate our strings in place. They're immutable. Uh, numbers are clearly immutable. You wouldn't try to you know, update five to be six and then you know use that for the rest of your program. But then we can sort of expand that to to larger things. So if I give you a list of numbers, and we're in a system where we have values, then that list of numbers you might associate with a name like X or names or scores or something like that. But the actual data doesn't change. Right? It's immutable. So that's the value part, the part that doesn't change. Does that kind of make sense as a first kind of initial pass of like the distinction between like a value and what would be sort of like immutable? Like when we think of what's at the other end of a variable in most languages, we think of like a bucket in memory. And we just like put things there. Is that kind of how you tend to think about things? Um, I simplify it, I think, a little bit from there. I think it is worth talking about what a variable is in imperative because, I mean, it's something that hopefully everyone is familiar with, but just the idea that we have some have a well an object or anything really but a, a value that can change it's a value that we start off 
it starts off either initialized or not initialized. And then over the course of the program, you're changing that variable as you need, like you're updating your high score for your game or you're um, iterating over a list and, and doing a sum. And so that's, a, that's what a variable is. Is and the very go ahead. The variable, like it, like when you say you're changing it, there's two types of changes, right? You're either changing what the variable points at, like what it refers to, mm -hmm. or you're changing what's at the other end of the variable, like the bucket in memory, right? You can do both of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we talk about values and variables in functional programming languages, you can't do either of those things. <laughs> you a if you say that x is this thing over here, this object or or map or you know database result set or something, that's what it is for the whole runtime of the program. And then second, if we do like create a list of numbers, that list of numbers is that list of numbers until the program ends. Now it can be garbage collected if no if there's nothing sort of bound to that name anymore, it's it's fine to, to collect it. But it can't be one, two, three and then later be one, two, three, four. Or two, three, four. Like that can't happen. You could basically only ever instantiate it, and that's it. If you have a what you, what I would call a variable in imper if you have a you know let x equal something, right? You kind of only get to vary at the creation time, and then it's it's fixed. Right, and it's not really varying it even. It's just saying x is this, just just so you know, and that's that's what x is. X is five, and so now they're exactly the same thing. All right, so let's start off with the big question: Why? Why would we even think this is a good idea? Maybe is a is there a better question to say why would you want to mutate your data? Yeah, I guess you could challenge the assumption that that the de facto is even a good idea. Like if you started from nothing, you know, if you yeah. if you had no sort of um, history behind how things came to be, you might say, why would I like I learned in math how x is five and then x is always five, and then I had to unlearn that. When I got to programming, like the first thing you learn is like, yeah, variables aren't like we call them variables, but they're nothing like those variables you learned in math. Right. You always hear like, oh, to be good at programming, you got to be good at math, and then it's like in the very first class, it's like, well, this is nothing like math. Except in functional programming, it actually is like math. Right. <laughs> they behave exactly the same way. So that that's that's an interesting point. Yeah. Why would you want to mutate things? Well, do you want to answer that? Why would you want to mutate things? I, you know, I'm far away from this at this point. It's hard to I want to redirect. I'm going to redirect this to Aaron. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny to say that because it's just such a basic concept. It's like trying to explain what a variable is. It's it's hard to go back and say like, well, why do you want? Because you change things. That's how it works. If you want to do stuff, then you you change it. If you're um, working with a variable and you want to update the value of the variable, then that's what you need to do. Would it be safe to s summarize your position as because that's the only way that seems obvious to do it? Like that um, seems to be the way to do things. Yes, and it's it's difficult for me to imagine another way to do things. Like, well, how else would you do things? There's no competing like idea that you have to like weigh against it and say like, okay, I picked this because of this list of characteristics. It's kind of like, well, everyone does it that way. That's just the way things are done. Yeah, it seems natural. It seems it seems very reasonable as someone that's you know been raised in that environment. So right, yeah. and it's hard, hard to see it in isolation. Right. It's, it's hard to say, like, what would I think about this if I had never seen programming and there was no one around me who had any opinions on this? Because that doesn't exist, right? Yeah, that's, that's not a stance I can, I can take. So what we could say is that when we're, when we're picking to do these things, strings are in most languages immutable. And if they aren't, there's always another concept that's like a string that fulfills the immutable kind of constraint because we need them for identifiers and things like that, right? So in Ruby, you can mutate strings, which is weird, 
So anytime that you would use a string that's sort of an identifier, you use this thing called symbol, which is just basically an immutable string with a different syntax. And maybe I'm misunderstanding here, but that, so you, you saying that doesn't make any sense to me coming from C-sharp. Like, absolutely strings are immutable. Uh, strings right? are not immutable in Ruby. You can just straight up, like, change them. Strings yep. are mutable, I was saying. Sorry. It's and, basically and like... as well. Sorry. The uh, the string the string literal in Ruby is basically a string buffer in C sharp. A string buffer. Okay. String builder. String or, builder. Well, string sort buffer. of. Yeah. It depends on what ecosystem you're coming from, but yeah, right. it's, the, it's the string builder thing where you you have this like it's backed by a buffer or something, and you can go and make changes to it, but you have this you have the knowledge that you're not going to make a huge copy of the string every single time to toss a letter into it. So in Ruby, yeah, one of the, the common things is that everything, like dictionary keys, are, are all done by symbols, not by strings. Because if you put a string in there, someone can mutate the string, and then the hash is wrong. Like the bucket that it got put in, that object got put in, is it's in the wrong spot. It would be very bad to put a string in as a, as a key. If it, right, if it can change. this reference to the string, and if you go and change it at some point later, it might inadvertently change the key of your hash. So just in, in general, what I'm trying to get at here is that there's there's cases where we clearly like value the immutability of things and strings, depending on what language you come from, might be totally in that camp of like, I can't even imagine mutable strings. Like that seems such like such a weird thing. We can't really imagine our source control generally being super mutable. Like we don't want the past to just go away. <laughs> like that's kind of the point of source control. We certainly yeah. don't want numbers to be mutable in the sense of five can take on a new meaning, right? That seems completely ridiculous. So I guess the question would be, what value do we get out of all those? Like, if, if there's a parallel to be had across all of those, um, what would it be? Like, what do all of those give us where we say, yes, these clearly have value? So from, from the outside, uh, I mean, the one that obviously makes most sense um, is you don't want five to be four. You don't want five to be any other number. Five needs to stick with what it is, right? Right. Because... I mean, that again just sounds ridiculous. Why, why would you ever change the value of five when it's, it's clear what you want five to be? And so the value of that not changing is just extreme clarity. Um, okay. You, you can, ex you can um, know what you're getting, right? Yeah, like, that's, it, it would be um, exceptionally confusing if you were able to change that. In, in much the way that people occasionally joke and occasionally provide evidence for where people do things like uh, redefine true and false in C with preprocessor directives, right? Sure. And that occasionally comes up and people can do nonsense like that. Um, and that's that we would probably consider that a bad thing, <laughs> that those should not be changeable in any way or redefinable because it, we lose a lot of understanding about what the program's going to do if those can change. Right, and people will do unusual things either, either for their own convenience or for perceived efficiency. And there should be things that you, you need to stop well, I don't know. I think that it helps a lot if there are rules in your language that stop people from doing silly things like changing the value of true and false. <laughs> yeah. So you know where the boundaries are, at least. You know at least what, how bad someone can make it if they choose to go down that route. Yes. Um, so, so along this like ease of reasoning, there's actually a word that comes up in functional programming circles fairly often um, that, that's related to this. Um, we've used it before, I believe. It's referential transparency, and it relates to functions. And immutability is part of, of this process. So we talked about pure functions, right? Pure functions are referentially transparent, which means that you could um, substitute the output of the function 
for running the function with the same inputs. So if I give you four and seven, you give me back banana, then the next time I have four and seven, you don't need to run that function. You can just give me banana, right? You, you can like substitute, they're, they're equivalent to each other. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, there's no perceivable side effects, all, all that fun stuff. And part of that is that if I hand you, let's say I hand you um, banana and, uh, and Logan, and you give me back car, <laughs> Uh, that might work that first time, and mm -hmm. it might be that every time I hand you banana and Logan, you hand me back car. But what if you're changing those? What if those are like objects or lists or hash maps or something, right? It it may not be um, that I can see from directly from the output that you're changing those, but you might still be mutating those objects. So you could still be violating sort of our contract that nothing has changed mm -hmm. and, and it would actually be the same. Because if you're actually doing something to, to the inputs, even though the output's the same every time, um, it's not the same to hand me back the, the output in place of running the function. Like those wouldn't be equivalent to each other anymore. Like let's say you increment a counter every time the function's called, right? Sure. It's not the same. So by, by not allowing us to mutate anything, uh, by having immutable everything, it really uh, helps enforce this idea of no, you're not going to go touch anything, whether it be the inputs or you know things that are like global, right? So how does this pull back into referential transparency specifically? Just that knowing that values are immutable helps give you certainty around the main maintaining of the sort of the contract around referential transparency. Like you know, okay. I hand you something, you're not going to mess with it. Uh, you, as you're writing the function, you can't mess with it if the language gives you any um, support for that. Like languages like Haskell um, yell at you if you try to change it. <laughs> they're, they're, basically, there's no facilities for, for changing it in the way we, you would normally think. In other languages, mm -hmm. if you're in JavaScript or C Sharp, well, you know, the language isn't going to help you out. You have to kind of keep that in mind. But it's, a, it's something to keep. Like m these values need to be immutable and they need to be written in a way that it's easy to um, sort of work with them without stomping on them. And that helps you maintain your, it's part of your contract of referential transparency. And so I don't want to get too specific here, but this seems like a good time to bring up a, a question of an example. Sure. And so you talked about that counter. If you do need to update that counter every time, like let's say your object, we were talking about bananas and Logan, so whatever, your banana has a counter on it. Um, and uh, we've talked in the past about how you'd return a new copy of that banana mm -hmm. and and assign to that or, or something, something along those sure. lines. Sure. Um, but how are you going to do that if things are immutable? If there's a counter on the banana, you can't change the counter, yeah. right? Yeah, so let's say that your counter is an object that has a, uh, a fruit type of banana and a count of zero. Sure. We, we pass that in. And what we get back is a new object, new banana object, that has a fruit type of banana and a count of one. So it's the same value, like the same fields, same structure. If, if, you, have, mm -hmm. if you have classes in your uh, language, it, might, it would be an instance of the same class. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is a new a new instance, right? It's a new value. But how did you do that without being able to change any value? Like, where is the plus one coming you, you in? You produce a new value, and part of that value is its tally. You're producing a whole new um, object object or class here in this case, and uh, but you have to somewhere add on to the existing. You're, you're adding one onto that counter somewhere. Yes. So think of it as um, in C sharp. If you write classes that have, um, this is not the only way to do this, but you can, conceptually you can think of it this way. You, you have uh, classes that will have only one method, which is the constructor, and they mm -hmm. have only uh, public read-only fields. 
Yeah, like, uh, well, that's how the ideal way to assign, to, to do structs, actually. Yes. yes, so think of it as uh, structs that are, that are read-only, right? And if you do that, you can have a object with two fields, and then you can call new of that object, passing in the type or the name or whatever, the one that you want to keep mm -hmm. the same, and then the one that you want to increment, you take the old object value dot foo plus one, mm -hmm. and you pass that in so, okay. to the constructor. So you're just for the passing new one. in the plus one. Okay. Yeah. So you're still. I mean, there's still that plus one. It does exist somewhere because it has to. Certainly, but you're not it's... changing something. You're producing a new value. You're not, you're not changing one. That's like a hard coded. Thing that's no, in it's there. just in the and parameter. You're in, when you instantiate that object with the parameter, you're you're setting it there. Yes, generally. And does that yeah. get complicated if there's a lot of things that are that are changing? Like if you it, it can and, and have a lot of fields that you need to increment. You can create intermediate change. values. Let's say you have an object with 10, 10 fields. Mm -hmm. You can take in the old object, calculate intermediate variables that are mm -hmm. new field one, new field two, new field so three. So if you do, wanted do, do, do. to, in this example, you could have uh, you know in a, have an integer counter that equals the old value plus one, and then pass in that value? To the constructor of the new object, yep. yes. If, if, we're, if we were making it, you know, this, that's, that's a real That's what example. I wind up doing quite a bit in JavaScript, just because I have 80 columns as an enforced rule for myself. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, I can't make, like, big wide lines very much. Mm -hmm. And so you use, a, like, kind of an intermediate variable that's just, just to make your, keep your line counts in, in order and... It also, it also yeah. in a way, like that can be more readable. It's, it's a little bit. Uh, it just depends on preference. Anyway, yeah. So that makes sense. whatever, whatever works for you, um, in in that regard. Um, and so, what that gives us is a. It helps us keep to our pure function kind of contract, and that feeds into this idea of ease of reasoning. Right? We do pure functions in the first place. The whole point of that is ease of reasoning. And immutable values have some very specific things that aid in making them easy to reason about. So if you have an object that can't possibly change, and uh, you want to know if it is different, <laughs> like you're going to hand it in, and you want to know if you got something different back. Let's say you've got an object, and it's got 50 fields on it. Mm -hmm. So you, you pass it in, and you get something back, and you want to know, did that function give me a new value, or did it just kind of pass it through untouched because it didn't have any work to do? If it's immutable, then that's as simple as old object dot you know, old object equals equals new object, where where equals equals in, in your language means like pointer reference, like reference equality, which is the norm for OO languages, right? It compares the objects in memory to see if they are the same object. Um, and does that, are the languages generally smart enough that if you pass in something and don't change any values for whatever reason, then uh, it would know it's the same object, basically? Well, well that's up to you, right? So if, I, if you have something and it's, it's called update, foo and mm -hmm. i pass you a new value five and my and my existing object mm -hmm. you have a couple options you could blindly copy all the values from old foo onto new foo along with the five replacing the you know the, the new value five replacing one of those fields right you're updating mm -hmm. in effect in replacing, replacing, yeah right. yeah uh, copy on write basically sort of i mean we're, we're like sort of explicitly doing the copy here um so right, right. we could do that, or we could say, I think a very reasonable optimization for that kind of function would be to check old object, and if its current value is 5, and the new value is 5, then there's no point in producing a new object, right? Because the, it, the result's going to be basically the same thing, or it's going to be exactly the sure. same thing, right? Yeah. Um, except it will have a different object identity, because you have instantiated a new object. Again, this is in like your JavaScripts and your C-sharps and whatnot.
So generally, mm -hmm. in those systems, you would just pass through the object unchanged because nothing changed, right? That's totally valid. You mm -hmm. said make dot z be five, five. Yeah. and it already it's was already five, five, so it just passed it through. So mm -hmm. in that kind of situation, if you kind of uh, and in that situation, are you returning that parameter right back as opposed to yeah, you just return it right back exactly. And then if not, you're creating a new object Correct. and then returning the new object. Yes, okay. exactly. And then I can just check: did I get the exact same object back, or is it a new object? If it's a new object, guaranteed something changed, because you can't take the old object and mutate it. You have to have created a new object. So for anything to have changed, there must be a new object created. And thus, the equals equals or triple equals if you're in JavaScript will return false. So that's kind of cool because in systems where you want to know, uh, in systems where it's expensive to update things, say like a UI, it's nice to be able to say, has anything changed? Would, would there be any work to do if I continue down this path? And to be able to short circuit out and say, no, there is no work to do. Therefore, I'm done. There's nothing to update. Or for sure, there's some work to do. I didn't have to go down and say, old value A versus new value A, B, C, D, do, 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 down 30 of them, right? You can just say, mm -hmm. is A is old A triple equals new A? And it, for people that aren't familiar, uh, JavaScript uses triple equals generally for sort of um, equality checks. I actually think in this case, double equals would be just fine. Um, I might be wrong on that. No one uses double equals in JavaScript, in my experience. <laughs> Everyone uses triple equals. As yeah, so I use it all the time. Use double but... equals, and does that try to do a value equality, or is that still like object identity? The answer is it depends. See, that's why I don't use double equals. Okay, so let's. I, I like it for null checks. If you want to say, if it. you do triple equals, for sure, it will be asking, is that object literally this? Are these two objects the same object? It is a. It yeah. is strict equality. So, yes. um, if you do that, then you can short circuit and say, hey, nothing has changed, or you can go forward knowing that, yes, for sure something has changed without having to go down and compare every field of the two objects with each other. Right, and if you do need to know that, then you can start comparing every field when you need to find the one that changed. But at least you know ahead of time whether or not to bother making that check in the first place. And that's a super inexpensive check. And things like React are actually built around this concept. They're built around this idea of being able to very quickly and inexpensively determine did anything change? Is it worth going down this fairly expensive route to do these um, further calculations? And by keeping your sort of your state stable in terms of its object identity, you are a, you get this optimization for very little work on your part, almost for free, which is super cool. Um, the other thing that's less common but is certainly possible is that um, if you do need to compare values, like let's say you can't guarantee that you're always going to keep the same object around, like you need to generate the same value in two different areas, or it's possible that we create more than once, and you want to very quickly be able to compare two things. It's pretty trivial in most cases to simply hash all the fields of an object and come up with an object hash. And if you compare though that with another object, you'll that's a very quick way to compare them, right? The object hashes. And not like the object hash that usually happens, which is like a memory address kind of a thing is what you get in like Java. And I'm actually not entirely sure in C Sharp what you get with that. Like get hash code kind of thing. I I think it's hash code is calculated in Java. I don't think it's. But I think it's based address. on your memory address. Um, no, because you should be able to use throw in the same set of values and get the same hash code out. I think if you create, kind of the, I think if you create a separate there. object, it's not stable in that way. But I could be wrong on that. Um, the point being, it's very easy to then hash your contents, 
and compare them. And that hash doesn't have to ever be kept up to date, right? You don't have this problem of like, oh, every time I update any of my fields now, I have to go recalculate this hash. You do it once upon creation of the object, and then it's stable because nothing is, is moving, right? So if you do need to be able to create two independent versions of the same value, you know, in terms of it's got the same fields, there's still like very efficient ways to compare those to know that they're the same thing. So you can get a lot of the same benefits as the object identity. That makes sense. I'm not. I've never uh, used object hashing in C sharp. I don't know that it's commonly used. Maybe I just have uh, have missed it. But it, it still makes sense. The the concept of what you're talking about. So, uh, are there any other benefits we have for immutable values? What comes up for you, Logan? Is there anything off the top of your head? I really like the concurrency aspect of it. Okay, talk, talk to us about that. All right. So, generally speaking, the scariest topic that we have as software engineers is concurrency, or even perhaps more specifically, threats. Okay. Right. Uh, maybe you guys have had to take classes on this or whatever. You've you've learned about dining philosophers, and you thought, "Wow, this is just a huge pain. Why would I ever write software that does this?" And in practice, we can usually get away with not doing it. Um, but the the problem with threading isn't that threads are complicated. It's sharing state across threads that you mutate. That's complicated, and everything that that you see for threading strategies and stuff revolves around you changing, you know, managing some state that's being changed by multiple sources, mm -hmm. right? So you've got you got all these things that are coming in, and like I want to use this variable. Well, what if I'm using it at that time? And, and and it's like I'm I'm using that variable, and I might change it out from underneath you. If your data is immutable, then it's like well, when I create my data, it's mine. Right. And anybody who wants to read from it can read from it. My, my my contract to everyone is I will not change it. So it's safe to read at any time. There's no locking that has to happen. Right. And Oh, and this is a good time to point out um, that uh, generally in OO, you make a bunch of your stuff private because you need to control who can mutate it. And you don't want sort of any part of your program willy-nilly to be able to go mutate it. If all your data is immutable, you private actually doesn't make any sense. Um, outside of a sort of an organizational standpoint of like mucking up your global namespace and having too much stuff around, if every single bit of data in your entire program is public and it's immutable, there's no harm in that. Like that's totally fine. Yeah, you can't screw anything up. Like the information hiding thing doesn't like OO and immutability are in effect solving the the, the information hiding part of OO and immutability are solving the same problem. How do I how do I prevent uncontrolled um, mutation of state? And so OO says, well, it won't be uncontrolled. It'll be only the f the methods on this class get to do it. And immutably says, we just won't mutate state. <laughs> so they're both solving the same problem in very, very different ways. But that also ties into what Logan's saying, because it's the same problem across threads, right? How do we keep these two threads from both trying to muck with you know the list at the same time? And so you, you make a thread safe queue or you lock and then you know have to deal with locking issues or whatever. If all the value if they're actual values and they're just immutable, then go for it. Everyone you could have a million threads at the same time reading from this, no problem. That does make sense as a as a benefit there because yeah, if you can't change anything and you're completely right, all your threading problems come from everyone trying to access the same thing. That's that's very clear as to why that would oh, be a benefit. Real quick, I wouldn't say all your so I, I don't mean to indicate that this solves all your threading problems. You still have race conditions because 
at the end of these calculations where you're reading from your immutable data, you still produce new values. And that's where you get into trouble. When two different threads produce new values and they are kind of competing and one is going to um, become the, the the winner of the, that calculation. The nature of, of race conditions changes in an immutable land, though. It, it's are you saying race, race or race? race. Race so race, like race who, who gets should, there first? We should. It's actually who gets there okay. last in this context, right? right. We but should it's like this. The, the order matters on who completed their execution. Yeah, if you're updating, for example, the, the UI state, and you get you know value or, or database, or whatever, and you get value, you get state one and state two, and state two gets there second, then it's going to overwrite state one without taking into account state one is what we're talking about. Without right? taking into account state one, that's exactly right. And so that happens anytime you have a single place that all these things have to be merged into. Like you only have one UI. You can only have one like position of your mouse or your keyboard or state of your screen, like you know, for your main window. So if you have two things kind mm -hmm. of dumping into that without of course taking into account what has already been put there, you you get into these kinds of race condition situations. Yeah. But what were we saying, Logan, about this, about the race condition part? So uh, the interesting thing about race conditions in, in an immutable Arena is. I, I've seen other software engineers struggle with this. They, 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 they have all these things that are going on in their application. They've got like, you know, queue managers that are feeding in all kinds of data to their database. And they have to display this to their users and yada yada yada. And uh, their challenge is like, I don't know what the source of truth is at any given moment, right? Like, there's some some absolute, you know, perfect truth where you could just take a snapshot of the entire world and that's what it's supposed to be. But that's really hard to do because then you have to tell everybody to like stop writing and it gets complicated. And how do you wrap your head around that? And the thing that's really funny to me about this, though, is that we work with tools that handle this stuff every day. Every day we have to check in code, right? Our, our source control allows us to edit in parallel with each other. And yeah, we have to have like a resolution mechanism if, you know, you and I edit the same line of code but you know it, it's the fact that you change code and i change code doesn't like like those aren't necessarily like conflicting truths and you know one has to be the authority and has to get in first but the problems come up i think on those mergers where you both change the same line of code and you can't ask the user which one's right because you know when you're doing source control and there is a, a conflict it just says what should i do and it has that ability to ask you as you know, you get to be the arbiter there. We, ha we have to resolve that. And that issue does not go away with immutable data. No. There is, however, generally a way to resolve that. And uh, Clojure has a pretty famous example of this, a, uh, a ref. And the way that works is uh, refs can change. So it's not that everything is, so again. Are these like refs like referees? No, okay. uh, they're like a reference. Okay. Like a box in memory that can have its stuff updated, like a traditional variable. Mm -hmm. So, in uh, just like in when we talked about pure functions, we never said that everything in your program will be a pure function, because that would mm -hmm. be silly. How would you get anything done, right? And in the same way, in pretty much any practical functional program, there is going to be mutation. But just like side effects, it's dangerous and it's tricky, and so we minimize it and we push it to the edges. Same kind of concept. So in the, in the same way that we would have effectful functions that do real work, we do have mutation. But generally, the way it's done is you have something like a ref, and the ref holds a value. And everyone can ask that ref for that value, and they will all get the same answer. Okay, And then what can happen is someone could say, 
So, and when I say someone, I mean like a process. A process can say, I want to put a new value in here. And what they do is they provide the function that will transform the old value into the new value. And they hand that to the ref. The ref then runs the function on the value. And in some cases, it gets a little more complex. Like you have to provide what you think the current value is in case it's changed since you last looked. Like if you were basing some, uh, if you were basing your new value on what you thought was the old value, but the old value has changed, your new value mm -hmm. is invalid. And that's the problem you were talking about, Aaron, with, you know, if, if the second thing gets there and doesn't take into account the first thing, you get into problems. So a ref is a very sure. simple way of saying, either give me a function that can go from the old value to the new value, just in terms of that, like plus one or something, or give me a function mm -hmm. and the old value, depending on the kind of system you're working with here, uh, that will then reject and say, no, that, that's not right. You need to... Um, you need to recalculate basically in terms of the new value so that you're, and then hand that back to me and I will apply it if it's still right. the, um, the current value. And then whoever produced that value needs to know how to like go back and fix that or drop it. Yes, or yes, whatever. yes. You, you have to and, be able to handle the case where like it's changed out from underneath you. But that's a completely different way of framing a race condition problem than you would in the normal procedure. Yes, you know, it's very plan. guarded. It's very specific about like the semantics of like what should happen in this situation. You're giving a function that handles merge conflicts, essentially. Yes, effectively, it's a very simple function for kind of merge conflicty things. So I know, Aaron, you were saying like, well, how does that happen? Because like there's no person in your computer to just resolve that. But because our data is so much simpler than like a bunch of source files with a bunch of lines changed of arbitrary text, yeah. you actually can have little merge functions that do resolve it. That it's that's definitely very very cool, and I th that feels like a whole new topic. Like maybe someday we talk at, at length about refs because I, I feel like I understand them, but there's a lot. Sure, I, th I think we should probably do something on like uh, multi-threading and refs and stuff like that. That could that could come up. But let's let's keep going on the mutable side of things. Um, a simple use case that I think comes up a lot: holding on to previous values. You might want to average. You might want to be able to implement undo. You might want to, you know, like our case before say no very quickly and cheaply if something has changed. Those are all examples of being able to hold on to a previous value. And that, that comes in handy a, a fair amount. And the reason we never think of like use cases for that is because it's just not possible most of the time, right? Like generally you kind of the object kind of like gets passed into you and you know it's kind of a transient thing and you just kind of like let it go and wave as it as it passes along and you don't try to hold on to it because you know that would be silly. And and in many cases super unsafe. So we, we just don't do it. Right, uh, but if a string comes through, you can hold on to that. If a number comes through, like an int comes through, that's safe. This is just a world where you can do that to anything. That yeah, that seems really clear, and that's that is. I can see where that would be the case that you can just store old copies if you're updating, you know, an object or your state or whatever. You just store all the old copies, and then you can always just go back to an old copy. Yep. So the next probably immediate question is how would you even accomplish this? We talked a little bit about that. You know, taking a uh, class that only has a constructor, that's the only method on it, and it has public read-only fields. Uh, that's certainly a very C-sharp slash Java-centric way of doing that, right? That's kind of what the expression would look there. If you're in JavaScript and you have access to any of the new um, ES6 stuff, there's the, the spread operator where you can basically say, take all the fields out of that previous object, except I want these two keys to have these new values, or this one key to have this new value. That's a very quick way to get a shallow copy of an object. And we probably could talk about um, shallow versus deep copying really quick, just to make that clear. Like a shallow copy is where you um, make a new object, but all the value of all your fields, you just copy over from the old one. 
And that's okay a lot of the times, but what if you're changing a list, like you have an object with a foo, and that foo is a list of numbers, and you're actually adding a number to that list of numbers. So what we have to do is we have to produce a new foo, and we have to produce a new list with the value inside, right? So we're going to have to touch two parts of, of foo. But if there's a, a second list on foo, bar, we don't have to touch that. That can just get, the reference can just get copied over directly into the new object because we haven't, it hasn't changed. Does that make sense? I think I follow. Um, are we saying that uh, they're going to be pointing the same memory address now, though? Or are we, if you change one object, right? Um, both the old foo and the or the old object and the new object can share their references to the list that didn't change. Okay, and that's is this only because of the fact again that we're immutable? Right. You only need to copy when you need to write. Okay. So basically, you make a, those are shallow copies. Uh, a deep copy is where you copy every um, sort of object all the way down the hierarchy. So if you have three fields, A, B, C, and they each have, you know, A has D, E, F inside it. You kind of go down the first tier and make copies of A, B, and C, and then A recursively has to make a copy of D, E, F, and then that recursively, you know, all the way down its chain. Um, if those are immutable values, then unless you're changing something deeply nested down this chain, uh, you don't have to make any copies. And under the hood, some of the functional languages do this, right? Like, like they work with all these lists and they're linked lists. And I want to add something to the end of it, and I'm going to do this 20 times. Do I have 20 lists now? The canonical example of this is the Lisp and Haskell linked list. So their list type is a linked list, and the way they work, it's a little funny. Um, they append to the front of the list instead of the end of the list. Mm. And so the way that works is um, we have an empty list, and then we add one element. So we have a and then we add another element, B, but B is the head of the list. So it goes B, then A. And the reason that it is, let's add, think about this, add the third element, we have C. C points to B, which points to A. But there's someone else out there who has a reference to that previous list of just B, A. So if mm -hmm. someone else has, if B is the head of their list, that list hasn't changed. It's just a subpart of this now bigger list. It's, a, it's like a history, right? Yes, in a sense, but it's only history for things that are aware that there is more. The, right. the, the list that the head right. of the list... I am C. I know that there's a B attached yeah. to me. But B doesn't know about the C. B does not know about and, C. Yeah. And it will never need to because it never changes. Right. And so you can yeah. keep adding new elements to the head of the list and keep sort of pointing your, you know, whatever name you're going to give to that, that list um, to those elements as you kind of keep adding on. And you'll never impact anyone who has a, a reference to anywhere in the middle of that list. I don't mean to be a broken record here, but um, again, if we're if we're dealing with immutable stuff, how do you add something onto a list? Well, so that's what you, you can't just add an element, right? But that's what we're talking about. So if it's a linked list, so you create okay. a new, so you have a a list with a b, so a is the head, of, or sorry, mm -hmm. b is the head of the list, and it points to a. Okay, so these are mm -hmm. linked list cells, right? So we add a new linked list cell. Sure. We put c inside, and we point its next pointer to b. If Logan had a reference to that B element, he would see a list of two elements. But you have a reference to the mm -hmm. C, and you see three elements. So you can see, I can see even more of that linked list. Let's say I want to add on to my list now, and I'm going to put a D on, right? So now I have my D cell that points mm -hmm. to B, and that's independent of your C cell that also points to B. So you now have two what feel like three element lists with different um, one element different and two shared, but really you're sharing the same nodes. Mm -hmm. 
in memory. Yeah, you're sharing the yeah the the tail of the list or whatever. And so that's why it. almost a lot a lot of stuff in Haskell and Lisp is list based because it's very efficient to add and uh, sort of pop elements off. And really, by popping elements off the the front of the list, all we're doing is is moving our sort of our head of the list pointer down that list to whatever wherever we want to start and saying that's the, the head of the list now. And I think my issue there is just with the vocabulary, um, because when we say add an element in imperative, we're talking about, you know, adding an element to the same list. And that's not, when you're adding an element here, what you're actually saying is it's kind of a shortcut for that whole statement of, well, we're going to take our object, pass into the thing, get our, you know, get a hold of an object. Back. Sort of. I mean, you do have linked lists in, in uh, C sharp and they can operate this way if you want them to. It's just they're not listed mm -hmm. in the um, contiguous memory, you know, block of memory sense, right? They're not arrays. It's not an array. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm more talking about the vocabulary specifically of when we say add an element. What we're saying really is not we're taking our list and adding an element. Now we don't have the old list anymore. We're we're saying that we're because we're working with immutable values. We by adding an element, what we're actually doing is passing in our list to the add method and yes, getting a whole, a whole new list back. Yeah. List back. Um, and so the sim similar things can be done for. Um, sort of the traditional like ordered array-like lists, um, any kind of map dictionary-ish kind of a thing. You, the way it turns out, if you're interested in this, look up persistent data structures. Um, Closure and Scala both use this at the core. Haskell is um, quite a bit older, and so the the sort of the research around this came around in the mid or the early 2000s, like 2003. And so a lot of Haskell's data structures uh, predate this, although there are implementations of this that are modern. Um, if you look at immutable JS by Facebook, it uses this exact same concept. And so what underlies it all is this thing called, a, a tr it's a tree structure. And it uses the same kind of structural sharing that we talked about, the linked list. It's just a little more complex. And uh, you can get reasonably good performance um, while get getting sort of the immutability characteristics. It's, it's like saying, I have this key and this value plus this other tree that's full of key and like subtree yeah. exactly so the stuff that doesn't change you just reference those old nodes and keep doing it and you do it in reverse just like you would the linked list yeah it gets a little more complex when you do a sort of where you can grab something in the middle of the list like what do you do when it's like one two three four and i'm allowed to just put something in between two and three <laughs> like i'm not adding on to the end and so that right. that becomes more complex um sure. But that's if you if you look at persistent data structures, you'll see um, examples of that. Okay, so something comes up, Aaron. Uh, you could probably speak to this. Is that uh, there's you will probably feel pain trying to do this in C sharp, right? You, I'm trying to do what specifically are we talking about? The idea of always producing a new object, or or structurally sharing oh, it yeah, somehow. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been I've been doing this a bit. And uh, occasionally there are pain points, but honestly, it's not so bad. And uh, I feel like it's not all that hard to implement. Um, and the way I the way I'm generally doing it is I'm just always passing in the object that I that I want to do work on, and then just passing back a new copy. And so all my stuff is just static, or all the static functions that are returning a new copy. And so if I'm, if I'm changing something, then that's how I'm changing it. So what about an object that has ten fields on it? Like ten properties. Do you um, just have a constructor with ten, like takes ten values? So, and maybe I'm maybe I'm not you doing this in the uh, in the best way possible. But so I'm passing in that the the initial value, right? I'm passing in my whatever mm -hmm. my object is. 
and then I do whatever I work on I want to do on that parameter, and then um, return. But it's not passed in by reference. I'm, I just return that uh, the, the changes on that object and get a brand new object on the way back in. But you're having to call sense? constructor along the way, right? Uh, no, I am not. It sounds like he's he's changing. He's keeping them immutable by convention, not by some enforcement by the compiler. Yeah, I would say that's actually more true because you're right. I, I'm not calling the constructor, so like you just make yeah. a new one and then you copy, you overwrite the values that you're interested in overwriting and copy over the rest or whatever. So you're kind of right. It would be a, a little bit of a pain point to um, to do that because I'd have to have a way to make an exact copy of my object if I really wanted to get. Is working if you want properly. to have the guarantee like that it really didn't change yeah you'd have to enforce it through a constructor right. this is a place where languages that want to do stuff immutably all over the place all have shortcuts <laughs> to making this much much easier so this this is very validly mm -hmm. a, a very obnoxious place in most imperative languages they do not give you a lot of help here as i'm walking through it too i realize like no that can't really work because i can't change my you know again we're talking about immutability here so i'm not following immutability concepts. Now, if you passed value objects, if your language has uh, value semantics where you can pass things on the stack, then you are actually mm -hmm. getting copies for free. Uh, so yeah, so C-sharp structs, structs will give you that, yeah. Will we'll work that way. Yeah, which is what I'm doing there, but you're still... Unless you, know, you pass by reference with just them. changing those values. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah anyway. Right, so you could get it in uh, as a parameter, kind of change the stuff that you want to change, and then return it, which will technically make a copy, but sort of inside the function, you've mutated it. So that's a little weird. You're, you're yeah. cheating, yeah. Um, yeah. But generally, I mean, you're, you're going to have to make some sort of compromises if you're like in C Sharp or Java or, or really any most imperative languages. Um, JavaScript being fairly good because it uses, uh, you can write some pretty good reflection type stuff to say, give me a new object that sort of deep copied everywhere, you know, just down yeah. this one path. And, and you can mask these changes as well. Um, you, you can have a function that, you know, inside there you create some object that belongs to some other library. You don't own it, so you can't make a copy constructor for it, mm -hmm. right? But since you can build this object inside of your function and then mutate it inside of your function, does anybody know or really care? Oh, that's a good point. Um, yeah. The whole immutability aspect only really becomes necessary once it leaves the scope of your function. So if you're like creating it and then like kind of mutating it before you kind of release it out into the world, some people would say that's not a good thing. I actually don't think that's a problem because externally there's no mutation going on, right? It's immutable from anyone's perspective outside that function. Right. So that's, a, that's actually a kind of a normal thing is to like kind of set things up and maybe do some munging while you're in there. And, but once you hand it out to someone else, now it's very important that it not get changed. It's it's worth noting, by the way, just for, for practicality purposes, those of us who are halfway to the promised land can't quite make it. Uh, in in JavaScript, object has an assign function on it, and it takes like three parameters, and I don't understand why there's a third one, but basically it's old value plus partial new value, right? And and values being other objects, right? And so you could you can create an inline you know, a literal object that's just like, you know, my foo colon bar or whatever. And um, and that's the one that wins when they merge together and that produces a new value and it doesn't change the old one. That's, you're not using Lodash, you're not using Ramda. That's 
raw JavaScript. There. It's a very simple function to write. Yeah, and yeah. if you look at the spread operator in ES6, it desugars into that. It's an it's just an object yeah. data sign. Right, right. Into a new object. And if you've got Ramda, even better because that's got merge. Yes, Lodash and Ramda both have like built-in stuff to do this in a in a good way. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the how. Um, I guess the only other thing that we might talk about with the how is sort of the once I give a variable a value, I say x is this list of numbers. I can't change x. I can't change the list of numbers. So how do I get anything done? And we talked about this on a previous episode a little bit, the idea of um, using recursion to rebind a variable to a new value, like within a new context. So you have like the outer context, and x is an empty list. And then you have, you recursively call yourself with a value to like, quote unquote, add to the list. And we construct a new list that's the old list and the new value. So we end up with like a list with like one in it or something like that. And then we recursively call ourselves with the next thing to, to put in the list. And we get a list that's like one, two, and, and so on. And, and it, inside each one of those um, sort of those invocations of the recursive function, we end up uh, binding you know current nums or list or whatever we want to call our variable to the current sort of list that we have. And that's a common way to sort of... Um, be doing the same, what would feel like a for loopy kind of a thing, but um, not actually changing anything along the way. And that that leads really well into, uh, I think, one of the common examples of, oh, well, how are you going to do this? And I think the most common question that comes up with immutability is, well, how are you even going to do something simple like, I have a list and I want the sum? Right, because you would have a total and then you add to the total. We kind of talked about this in the higher order functions. Yeah, we talked about Because it, it's actually, yeah. I mean, that's the use case, right? Is you use a higher order function. Um, generally, it doesn't explicitly have to be a higher order function. You could handwrite one that just does this. But fold, um, if you give it a, fu a, a function that sort of adds two things together, then you can do a fold on your list and get the total. And that's an example of, you know, that that'd be the very FP way of summing a list or, or doing anything kind of re reducery to it. Take a whole bunch of things and boil them down to one thing. I remember... Uh, random number generators, I felt, was always a good, great example for immutability stuff. Oh, how's that? Um, well, usually you're used to, like, I'm going to reach into the math thing and call random, and that's just going to, like, give me a random number. Uh, maybe it had a seed initially, and then later on, when I call it again, like, I'll get something different. Like, that's definitely not pure function mm -hmm. land. Like, something's getting chewed up there. Um, and I think the, the, the thing for in functional land what you would do is whenever you call your random number generator, you'll get a random number back and a random number generator. And that random number generator is based off of the last, you know, call that you just made. And then when you want to invoke it again, like you use the new one and that produces a new value. And you can just keep, as long as you can keep passing the new random number generator, you keep getting new values. Right. And yeah. if you want to get the old value again, you could reach back and do that for whatever reason. You could reproduce it. Like what? Yep. What did? What would we have gotten last time? Kind of a thing. Yeah. You could hold and that's that. you know if you're actually doing like procedural generation stuff, like knowing that a seed will always produce the same thing is kind of important. Yeah, that makes it deterministic in yep. that regard. And another example mm -hmm. that I think uh, I I don't know the internals of how this is implemented, but I could guess if you've played Overwatch. Um, there's replays at various points. There's uh, sort of play the game type replays, but every time you're killed, there's a replay of what led up to that just before. And that's not like a video they're taking. Like they're actually going back, restoring the game state back to a previous state, and then replaying all those events 
from a different perspective leading up to the kill. So they have to maintain in some way a buffer of the game state and then, you know, in order to be able to traverse it again. And the easiest way to do that for them is going to be having things be very, like, deterministic. Right, right. and they're going to need some kind of immutable type value. Instead of saying, like, oh, well, well, hang on, let me go set up all of the all of the state, and then I'm going to start applying the, the deltas hopefully the same way. It's like, no, mm-hmm. no, if, if we have a guarantee from the start that everything's deterministic, I should just be able to put it in the state and then feed inputs into it that we were getting before, and it all turns out the same. Every right, time. yeah. A, a really common way to do that is to, to feed all the same inputs in, put, put the game back in the same state, and if you've got snapshots, you can just easily do that, yep. and then feed all the same inputs, and you'll get the same outputs. And that's been a common way of um, doing games for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, and immutable data structures makes that very easy. I'm not saying that that has to be the way they did it, but my guess would be is they have something very similar to a big immutable data structure that is in ty- sort of a time time sliding window of the last 10 seconds sort of a yep. thing. Super hot go back to. is that game. It, That's true. It, the entire game that you, the session that you play is recorded from beginning to end. And you get like all the time you want to make decisions and then you do an action. And like, as you do the actions, the game plays through in like a real time, but you can pause anytime you want, right? The game, you know, keeps rendering, keeps doing everything. But I guess at, at the end of it, once you've beaten the level, it rewinds everything and just like replays all of your decisions from beginning to end without any pauses. And then it looks really awesome and like you've got like your act together. Yeah. yeah. And it's super deterministic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, what are some other scenarios that we might run into? Um, yeah. I was hoping to simplify things a bit because I think those, those are great, but they're also not real certainly. simple examples particularly. And so um, just taking it to a very, very simple level, how are you um, updating your UI? Like, let's say you've got a UI, you've got a page with a text box on it, and that can change potentially, and a, and a few other elements. GUI, that's what, quite stateful, you... right? It maintains its own state, like if it's a, a web form or yeah. something, you know, .NET kind of thing, or Java swing thing. Redux uh, does this really well, I feel like. It, it does, but I, I want to talk about the stateful thing first. I guess in HTML, it's still stateful. This may be the same thing. Because, um, yeah, you're still like mutating the DOM, right? The DOM is still stateful, yeah. Okay, well, give the Redux example then. So Redux example is you separate your state changing from your DOM representation, right? And so you get these actions, these abstract actions that come in. They might be backed by DOM actions, mm-hmm. but really they're abstract by the time they get to you. And the the thing that Redux says is like, okay, you're going to give me a function, and this function is going to take uh, the original state and whatever this abstract action is, and based on that, you're going to produce a new state. And you have to give me a new state. Like that's that's the law that they have there. Is do not mutate the original one. Your state is kind of an object, is what we're saying, yes. right? Yes, and state it's has got all the properties yeah, that are that are relevant. Okay. Yeah, and and it's it's arbitrary. It's whatever you decide the state should and be. And sometimes the the event that's often coming in is something simple as like I pushed a key in this text field, and so like here's the letter mm-hmm. E coming in, and like here's the new value of the text field. What do you want me to do with it? And it's like, well, I could run validations, or I could just like stuff it in and just run with that, or whatever. But um, and it's producing a new state every it time. Produces so you've a got new the state old state, the new state. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and then it's very easy to take that new state, yep. and go like we were talking about earlier, and determine if it's changed, and if so, you can run down and say what has changed. Right. And then at that point, then you run over to your UI and say, okay, now we need to go and update this. I have my state. Uh, because I can do object equality, I can quickly check which of the which parts of the state have changed. 
And now I know mm -hmm. which parts of the UI I could hypothetically go and like just update that one. And the only thing that you describe as the user should be, or it's the consumer of this library should be like, given I have this data, this is how it should look on the UI. You define mappings between the state and sort of the UI that should be updated when that state changes, and then it takes this care is, of it. This is the thing that makes immutability so simple is that you're never thinking about what does it mean to update and delete and these other things. You're just thinking about what does it mean to create this new state and represent that? Well, so I specifically React takes care of that for us because we, it kind of does the diffing and then kind of the reconciliation. Right. It does. It, does it kind of figures delta. out how to shove the changes. Yep. But um, the point that I think is really valid here that I think Aaron is hinting at and is needs to be brought up is that we are then mutating things. Like at this point, we are going to go clobber things in memory. We're going to go update like a input in a .NET form. There can only be one of those. Like that does that's not immutable. So we have to just like say, here's your new value, plop. And then that becomes the new value, right? The old one is gone. But the state behind it is still what you're storing. And I and I, I hear what you're saying and like, yeah, you're right. This the 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 physical UI is mutable. I wasn't trying to trying to be sneaky here. Oh no no I'm just it's, right. it's a really That's... good point because people I think often hear it's immutable and then they go to but I have to update the text in my field or else it doesn't show up on the screen. It's like, no, you're absolutely correct. It's just that's sort of like a side effect of the actual state. Most people, a lot of times I think people think of the thing in the DOM as the actual state or the thing in the WinForm as the actual state. And what mm -hmm. FP would say is that that's not the actual state. That's sort of just a byproduct. And the real state is, you know, the state structure that we define. And then we, we create this mutable effectful binding between the two that gets triggered when our real state changes. And that's almost like a byproduct. You don't even don't think about it. It just gets kind of every time you update the state, it triggers or there's some you know clock cycle sixty times a second, you just well, shove your new values over into your mutable UI state. And in a way you've still got the kind of a pure function there. Like your your UI state is always going to be the same if you give it the same, you know, background state. Yep. It's so. just very declarative at that point. It's not a pure function. It is a deterministic function. So it's going to affect something. It's effectful, but it will always mm -hmm. produce the same effect. Sure, that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, but but I see what you're saying. Like it's and the nice thing there is the sort of messy logic part happens in the pure function state to state. You know, old state produce new state, and then from there, mapping a bit of state to a UI is generally a fairly straightforward operation. Yeah, and you were talking about you know, certain libraries that do that for you. you have yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> it's like a yeah. whole cottage industry. Every three months, there's a new virtual DOM diffing thing that comes out. And uh, you know, you can write the same similar thing for, for .NET, for WinForms, or yeah. whatever the new hotness is. Um, that's a fairly straightforward thing to do. And you, you kind of only have to do that once, assuming it you know performs adequately and does the stuff you need. Most of the stuff that you care about is in your your logic of updating your your logical state. Mm -hmm. So that's where we spend most of our time. All right, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us this time. Hopefully this sort of cleared up the big mystery around how programs that don't change anything actually do anything useful. Uh, it is definitely not an easy topic, so keep at it, and it will get, uh, as you see more use cases and you sort of grapple with it, you'll see ways of working in immutability into your programs. It'll be start to become more natural. If you want to let us know how we're doing, please send us an email, contact at lambdacast.com, or you can uh, ping us directly on the FP Chat Slack community. And we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.